This week's episode is brought to you by ISTE. At ISTE Live 23, on June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. Get inspired about teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. And then bring that joy back to your school. Register now at isteconference.org. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. It's rare that a story about technology and education makes the evening news. Okay, listen to this. Very creepy. A new artificial intelligence tool is going viral for cranking out entire essays in a matter of seconds. That was from the CBS Evening News on December 20th, just before the Christmas holidays. And of course, the, quote, creepy technology they're describing. And it's called ChatGPT. The idea is to is to give you a simple prompt like write a summary of the American Revolution and the bot will generate several paragraphs in under a minute. Suddenly, just about everyone seemed to be talking about this new free chatbot, which can generate original text that seems like it was written by a person. And one of the biggest questions raised point blank in an Atlantic Magazine article that ran in December is, will ChatGPT kill the student essay? These days, you can find endless hot takes and speculation about what this groundbreaking AI technology will mean for education. And let's face it, no one knows what the answer to that is yet. But there are some questions that may be answered sooner. One of them is, can this new AI be detected? Is it possible to build tools that accurately tell us whether something we are reading was written by a human or by a bot? Or does this new breed of AI technology require a whole new approach to checking for academic dishonesty. On today's episode, we're going behind the scenes on some up-to-the-minute efforts to detect AI and to try to build other guardrails for educators so they can successfully adopt these tools. Specifically, I talked to two technologists making these AI tools, a professor and a longtime writing center director who's trying to understand the impact of AI on student writing, and a nonprofit leader who has been given an advanced look at the next generation of AI chatbot so he can try to incorporate it into a popular tutoring tool for students. I hit lots of surprises along the way, and I realized that the questions raised by this so-called generative AI are bigger than I first thought, and the stakes are much higher than just how to assign essays and grade them. The first person that I wanted to talk to for this episode is actually a student. Edward Tian. He's a senior at Princeton University, and I connected with him by Zoom a couple of weeks ago in his dorm room. As regular listeners know, Princeton is where I went to college too, back a long time ago, and it turns out that Edward lives in a dorm that I did at one point. The simple wooden furniture I saw in the background of the Zoom call looks exactly the same as when I was there. Of course, plenty of things about college has changed a lot, For one, Princeton now offers classes that just didn't exist back in my day, including one on natural language processing, the branch of artificial intelligence that produces tools like ChatGPT. And I had just taken the grad course for grad NLP, and we were doing like 
team research projects with grad students on on this generative AI stuff. So I was like knee deep in it uh, when this was happening. So when ChatGPT hit the public in November, Edward was looking for interesting things to do with it. So it was a new, totally new field, but I think I, I had a little bit of a conviction that someone had to detect it. Um, and, and it was sort of like we were opening a Pandora's box in that moment and there was a, a lot of panic and it, it's not like to say, hey, we got to like stop ChatGPT from being adopted, but it's more of we got to know when it's being used so it's adopted responsibly. So I sort of had a, a more of a conviction and just wanted to find a method to do it right away. This Princeton student wanted to build a detector that could pick up on whether text was written by ChatGPT. And as he entered prompt after prompt into the bot, he says he noticed something. I had been really lucky to sort of discover this phenomenon that no one else had been looking at then, which was these two variables. One, one I kind of uh, half named, so like perplexity and burstiness, and, and sort of this phenomenon where, hey, the current machine writing looks pretty boring over time versus like human writing. If we're like, uh, like plotting it over time and certain variables, it has like really like big variants and stuff. And, and sort of it just like looked totally different from machine writing, human writing. And no one had really uncovered that phenomenon then. And I was like, wow, I, f- I got this, found, found this. And I was like, cool, I can just take this and, and code out an app that everybody can use. I'm learning lots of new terms um, covering the story. And I was struck by this term, perplexity of burstiness which feels both playful and kind of out of control. In any case, Edward set to work over his Christmas break to code an app that used this technique to try to detect language that seemed written by ChatGPT. He called his tool GPT-0. And then January 1st, I put the app online, and January 2nd, I tweeted about it, and it was just, like, kind of crazy when it went viral overnight. That tweet was a thread that began, I spent New Year's building GPT-0, an app that can quickly and efficiently detect whether an essay is chat GPT or human written. Another part of his thread said, in short, there is so much chat GPT hype going around. Is this and that written by AI? We as humans deserve to know. Immediately, over, over 7 million people saw the viral tweet I would say the first few days the app crashed because my hosting platform that I was using, I had a free subscription and they were kind enough to reach out to me and say, this was actually the biggest app ever on our platform. We're going to give you unlimited resources. And and it was back online. And then so now we've actually totally migrated the tool into our own website uh, hosted on like AWS. uh, And and it's yeah, it's now there's no problems like everybody can use it. Um, over 1.4 million people have tried out the tool, um, and we have around 60,000 daily active users. I have talked to professors who are, in fact, trying this out. Just a couple weeks ago on this podcast, in fact, we had on a professor at Texas State University who's on the honor committee there, and she says she has been experimenting with it. But there's one problem with relying on this perplexity of burstiness detector. It isn't always right. I ran a quick test with a recent article that I wrote for EdSurge. The article was about a classroom technique called flipped learning, and it centered on a new research study. So I swapped out part of my article with a summary of the research paper that I had ChatGPT compose. 
And then I put this composite article into GPT-0. After a short delay while the machine crunched the numbers, it came back with this note. Your text is likely to be written entirely by a human. If I had been a student slipping in some chat GPT to my essay, I would have gotten away with it. An article that ran in Futurism magazine in January that got a lot of attention described a more extensive test of GPT-0's performance. The author fed the tool 16 pieces of text, half of them written by AI and half by humans. And GPT-0 got the right answer seven out of eight times, which is pretty impressive. Except, what if you are a student falsely accused of cheating by the tool in that one out of eight times that it's wrong? Edward Tian actually doesn't even argue that his tool is perfect. In fact, even he says that educators should not use it as a policing tool, at least not as the sole evidence that a student cheated. We're shifting away from a tool that's like a catch the student at the end of the day, like a black and white, this is AI or this is human. Uh, so now if you try GPT-0 uh, at gpt0.me, it's, um, it's a tool that you put your text in and it highlights the portion of an essay that's more likely to be AI generated. And we did that, one, because educators in our community requested it a lot, uh, and two, because uh, it shifts away from something that's like a tool that catches student into like something that starts the conversation between teacher and student on what's the acceptable level of AI involvement. Interesting. So you're not you're not saying you're not mo- saying like here's a flag of like a guilty person of breaking a rule. We don't think that's the no yeah definitely not the right approach. We need a tool that helps teachers and students navigate this new world on what's hey the right level AI involvement, not definitely not the entire essay level. And not, definitely not like at the word level, but something in between. And it'll vary between what year from K to 12 uh, or college. And it's also like what level will still allow people to learn critical thinking skills. I think that's the most important. I hear you completely that the idea of you being a policeman is not your goal. And yet, you know, there's this sense of like some students may know very well that they're breaking a rule and trying to get away with presenting something is not their work as their work. And so what is that, what are the kind of conversations you think ideally your tool would start? Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like, I don't even know if like, like plagiarism is the right word here. Cause no one knows what's yeah. Like these policies are changing. Like teachers are still <laughs> like figuring everything out. So we do have like a GBU zero educators community with, over 3.5 thousand teachers right now. And they've been sharing and like supporting each other a lot with these content. I remember reading a post of like a teacher that gave an essay to a student and then the student on like a film review and the student wrote like a very coherent response and it featured like an ice cream truck. And the teacher is like, there's no ice cream truck in the entire film. So she just sent an email back asking the student uh, saying, hey, great response, very well written. Can you just tell me more about the ice cream truck? It was like, hey, this is going to be a lesson learned either way. Um, But it's like, yeah, teachers and students are, I guess, are still just like navigating this. The ice cream truck scenario that he talked about highlights a strange reality of ChatGPT and other generative AI at the moment. It turns out these generative models have a tendency to make up facts every now and then. Like saying there's an ice cream truck in a film when in reality there is no ice cream truck. Researchers call these moments hallucinations. You just can't make this up. 
And it's definitely one way a human teacher could catch someone trying to turn in a bot-written work as their own. But the people behind ChatGPT say their newer versions don't do this as often. Naturally, this Princeton undergrad is not the only one trying to build a ChatGPT detector. In fact, there are companies that have been working on it for a while, knowing that these large language AI models were under development. One company in particular with a big interest in the space is Turnitin, which makes a tool used at many schools and colleges that checks papers for signs of plagiarism. I recently sat down with the company's vice president of AI, Eric Wang, who says the company has been experimenting with the technology behind ChatGPT for about two and a half years. Early on, we realized it is detectable. And the reason it's detectable is because these models are trained at what we call the sum of human knowledge scale. And the way they work, the way they write, is they pick each word according to a distribution, and they tend to pick highly probable words um, based on the words that they've seen before or based on the words that have already been written. And what ends up happening is that AI is more consistently high probability than a human is. Humans are idiosyncratic in the way we choose words. And that's a function of the way we write and understand. So when we are writing, our minds are dancing back and forth sentences or paragraphs behind or into the future. And AI isn't doing that. And AI is just saying condition on the last thousands of words that I've seen, that I've written. Um, what's the mo next most probable word? So our detectors are able to cue in on that statistical difference between AI writing and human writing. And what's really interesting, too, is that statistical signal isn't really visible to humans. For the same reason that I just talked about, humans, we, when we read, we read for semantic meaning. So we're not sitting around thinking, oh, this word is a highly probable word here. Oh, this word is a highly probable word. We're thinking about each word as it means uh, and it contributes to the broader idea of what the author is trying to tell us. And um, because we're cued in on that, um, these statistical signals actually are pretty invisible. So even though they're very visible to the detector, um, humans don't pick up on them very reliably. And that's why AI writing feels so human-like to us. One of the things, you know, one of the experts I've talked to says that, like, whatever we're using now with these AI chatbots and AI as it is, like, these new, this new level... Um, it's the worst it's ever going to be. It's going to get better and better and better. Are you, are you saying that even as these, these tools improve, there will be a traceable botness to it? I think as these tools evolve, and I, don't, I use the word evolve and, uh, uh, deliberately rather than improve, they'll become less detectable. And that, but I don't think it'll happen as a direct result of nefarious things to defeat detection. I think that as these reinforcement learning engines that sit on top of lar these large language models get more sophisticated, they will naturally start to develop idiosyncrasies. Um, and when that happens, our ability to detect them directly the way that we're doing today will probably attenuate. Now, I don't know if that'll happen a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. Um, the technology is evolving very, very quickly and a little bit unpredictably. But I do think that the overall signals that we see will probably get weaker. So this company, Turnitin, it plans to release its own AI detector before the end of the school year. 
probably sometime in April. But even Eric Wang admits that the traces that they're picking up on right now may not be as reliable down the road as the tech evolves. Does that mean we're heading for a world where we don't even have a reliable way to tell what is human? Detecting AI writing is an imperfect science, and it will remain an imperfect science. There is no such thing as a perfect detector. AI writing especially is challenging because the technology is new, and unlike our historical academic integrity products, there's no source document. I can't produce a document and ask you why there's uncanny similarity between what you just submitted and this other document that's historically existed. So really, what we need to do is help facilitate a new type of conversation that hasn't really existed in education before. The closest thing that we have and we have a product for is actually contract cheating, which was a major issue for certain parts of the world. The contract cheating is this uh, essays for hire where you just uh, like hire people to write your paper for you. So it's an original paper. It just isn't the work of the student. That's exactly right. And so in the same situation, uh, like contract cheating, what we have are much more subtle signals, statistical signals, and the need to facilitate a deeper conversation. But unlike contract cheating, it's not entirely clear that using these tools is immediately a breach of academic integrity. These, are, these tools are so new. Going out and hiring someone to write your essay, well, that's clearly an issue. But using a powerful new AI tool to gain inspiration or to structure an argument or essay Maybe it violates certain uh, uh, academic integrity uh, guidelines if you were expressly told not to. But I think in many cases, we as a society and certainly as educators are grappling with the role of these technologies. And so it's not entirely clear that something bad happened. And so building a tool that facilitates meaningful conversations that move us forward rather than being perceived immediately as a punitive measure is really, really important to us. When we come back from a quick break... Will educators use these detectors? Or are there other ways to add guardrails to AI chatbots? Stay with us. For more than four decades, the ISTE conference has been recognized as one of the world's most influential education events. It's where educators and education leaders gather to engage in hands-on learning, share best practices, and hear from the brightest minds from the world of education and beyond. At ISTE Live 23, June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. From real-world lessons that empower students to groundbreaking ways to collaborate to leading-edge edtech tools, you'll find out how to lead next-gen learning during hundreds of strategy-packed sessions. Rediscover your passion for teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. Then bring that joy back to your school. Register today at isticonference.org. What do educators think of this? To get one perspective, I connected with Alfred Guy, Director of Undergraduate Writing at Yale University. He has been working with student writing there for 19 years, and before that he held similar roles at Johns Hopkins University, Princeton, and New York University. So he has a deep expertise in student writing. Is he worried about whether we'll be able to reliably detect AI writing? I think this might come out a little arrogant, but I'm 
I feel unlikely to use a chat GPT detector because what I understand they're able to do is to measure the statistical likelihood that uh, a large language model has produced the text. And in a sense, to recognize what the output is as something a machine would write. And my belief is, if I can't tell that the output is not good enough, then I oughtn't to be teaching students to do this kind of work. So it'll be my dissatisfaction with the output that will drive my feedback to the student. And let me just put this in another context. So, you know, like all universities, Yale pays some attention to the, the threat of plagiarism. You know, we, we want students to do their own work. We have some fairness concerns. And when I say we, I can't really speak for the university fully on this, but I've participated in all the conversations about how our regulations are written and how they get enforced. And because I run the writing center, I'm constantly guiding students to how to do their own work. So I feel like I can a little bit speak. We have some concern about that, but our experience has been, and, and we, have, we have some data to back this up, students generally do their own work here. And plagiarism is a small percentage of what happens even before ChatGPT. And that many plagiarized papers get detected by the um, professor reading them and saying, this doesn't sound right. And then checking to see if they can find the source on the internet. So um, I'm, I feel like when ChatGPT can do work that's so good that I would need a machine to help me find it, um, I would need to have my teaching better and not my detection better because threats and punishment have not so far been a very important part of the incentive for students doing their own work. I, I can't be sure what's going to be true 10 years from now. I, I suspect that as good as ChatGPT gets or any AI writer, where I will be is on the edge of, okay, so what's the difference between what it can do and what you can do using it? So I think that the move will be right now I'm helping people think about how can you get students to do essentially the same work they always did by improving their motivation and the scaffolding of your assignments, giving them feedback at lower stakes so that they'll be invested in doing their own work. I'm pretty sure in 10 years, I will be helping people think about, okay, given that ChatGPT can do, or, or anything else, whatever we're working with then, can do 90% of what students used to, be, used to do on their own, not, not 50%. How do we emphasize the 10% in our expectations and in our teaching? Like, so I think I'll be helping people work on, let's assume students are using an AI tool as a collaborator, and let's talk about what work is new and fresh and literally can't be done because there aren't language sources for it to sample yet because we're working at the edge of knowledge. It's worth noting that the company behind ChatGPT, OpenAI, has also released a classifier tool to detect text written by ChatGPT. But oddly, the OpenAI folks are even less sure of their tool's abilities than either of the other AI experts that we've heard from so far. In a press release that OpenAI put out about its tool, officials said that it correctly labeled AI-written text as likely written by AI only 26% of the time. And the release went on to warn that it sometimes, quote, incorrectly but confidently, unquote, labeled human-written text as being from an AI. Usually, press releases try to be as glowing as possible, but this read more like a consumer protection label against using a product. It's also worth noting that some schools are really worried about students using ChatGPT to cheat. So much so that a few districts have banned the tool on their networks and on school devices. 
That's the case in New York City public schools, Oakland University District in California, and Seattle public schools. They moved to BlockGPT back in January. Even before ChatGPT was released, though, its leaders were looking to work with educators to try to build the tool into positive educational experiences. As part of that, in late summer, two of the top leaders of OpenAI, Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, reached out to Sal Khan, the founder and CEO of the popular Khan Academy, a free online collection of videos and other tutorials on a range of subjects, as well as free study materials for the SAT and other standardized admissions tests. They sent me an email and they say, they said, hey, we're working on our next generation model. Uh, we'd love to chat with you about it. I was just curious. So we had that meeting. And in it, they said, look, uh, we're working on GPT-4, which is the next generation. And, you know, for those listening, uh, chat GPT is built off of GPT-3 or GPT-3.5. So this was pre-chat GPT, but it was also working on the next generation model. And I said, well, you know, what, 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 why are we interesting to you? And they said, look, there's two reasons. One, we want to make GPT-4 much better at handling knowledge, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And and they, one of the tests would, how, how would it perform on a, say, an AP biology exam? Or how would it, would it perform on an LSAT? And those are two areas that Khan Academy has a lot of material. So perhaps they could use some of our questions uh, to help test or maybe even train the model. That was one reason they wanted to talk to us. Can we stop right there? I just think this is worth pausing. I feel like with AI over the years, it's like we have AI, you know, winning on Jeopardy or winning at chess or something. Here's a moment where they want to see how their AI does on us, uh, the, the SAT. Yeah, yeah. I know people have mixed feelings about standardized tests, but standardized tests are t- standardized and they could be a standardized way of measuring in artificial intelligence as well. <laughs> so, uh, and, and it's a way of benchmarking it against uh, at least high school students or maybe kids wanting to go to law school or whatever. So uh, yeah, they, totally. they they reached out for, and the, but the other reason, and this was probably the primary reason, they said, look, we think GPT-4 is going to be the one that really gives everyone a wake-up call on how powerful this technology is, which is both exciting and scary. And we think it's really important to launch with a social positive use case. That was their words. And uh, folks trust Khan Academy. We're not-for-profit, and we really are all about trying to safely uh, educate and empower as many folks as possible. And, And also, we're clearly on the side of teachers trying to help them help their students. So, I was skeptical, but a couple of weeks later, they said, hey, we've just finished our first training pass of this new model. We'd love to demo it for you. And uh, we took the meeting. And in that demo, they took an AP biology exam question from, it was either one from a real test or it was from Khan Academy. And it got it right. I was impressed. And I said, oh, well, let's have, have it explain its reasoning. And it explained its reasoning. I was like, oh, this is really cool. I said, write another question like it. It was able to write another question, a similar but different question. And then, um, you know, that felt like I was getting into, you know, the I had looked into the looking glass. <laughs> it felt like a little bit of an Alice in Wonderland moment. Um, and they gave myself and our chief learning officer and our chief technology officer access that weekend. And, you know, I spent a lot of time. It, it Actually, they gave it to us as a Slack bot. So I spent a lot of time chatting. Uh, this was all pre-chat GPT and, you know, chatting with GPT-4 on on Slack most of that weekend. And, you know, there, it was a fascinating, fascinating. I said, the world is now different. Did it fall in love with you or do any, any anything like it did with that New York Times reporter that a lot of our listeners have, have read about where it was Bing, but using the same underlying technology, 
uh, purported its love for the New York Times columnist. Anything like that happened to you in that experience? Well, I, I don't like to, you know, I'm a very private person, so I, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, no. In, in all seriousness, I was actually surprised by the um, the Bing Sydney experience because I have spent tens of hours, hundreds of hours at this point. And some of it is, you know, for work, but a lot of it is me just trying to figure out where this thing can go. And you can definitely have conversations with it that I would say feel a little bit otherworldly because it feels so smart um, and uh, you know, I, I I understand how these models work, but when you're just operating with it at a an emotional level, you can sometimes feel like, hey, there's something going on here. I'm I'm speaking to something, and um, but you know, I, I've I've had conversations about you know, are, are there things you think that you don't express <laughs> and things like that. And so, yeah, I, I definitely went down the rabbit hole. But um, the, the the but but it's clear that there was a lot of power, and I think one of the really interesting use cases that we saw from the very early days was that it was able to drive a nuanced conversation. And, and what I mean by that is, and this was all pre-chat GPT, but even today, if you just go to chat GPT or GPT 3.5 and you ask it and you say, hey, um, tutor me in the following, it's just going to tell you answers. It's just going to start spurting facts or hopeful facts. We do know that these models can sometimes hallucinate. Uh, but if you prompt GPT-4 correctly, it can really drive a really interesting nuanced conversation, really interview you, really pull things out of you. Uh, and so we, and just right from the get-go, Khan Academy, we've always aspired to be something of a, of a, a approaching a tutor in everyone's pocket or on everyone's computer. And so that when we saw this, we're like, wow, this could be a really amazing. If we get the, if we get the math to work, right. If we get uh, the hallucinations down and things like that, this could be a really interesting uh, and we we figured out all the safety and privacy and all of that. This could be a really interesting use case of, about tutoring. Um, as, but every day that went on, we just realized that we were being a little bit narrow in our thinking. That it could do all sorts of things. Yes, of course, it could help tutor in in math or science or humanities, uh, but it could also answer questions when you're watching a video. We gave it the you know it can kind of quote see the video. We do that by giving it the transcript. Um, it can help. Uh, students understand why something is relevant, connect one concept to another concept. It could help students find things on Khan Academy. And then we realized there's a whole series of activities that we could maybe pioneer that the world hadn't seen before that's only possible with artificial intelligence. Things like pick an interesting topic to debate and you pick one side and the AI can take the other side. And it really feels like you're debating with a, a thoughtful friend or a teacher or or whoever. Um, we set it up so that you could talk to historical characters, talk to um, uh, uh, fictional characters. It was when Sal Khan saw his 11-year-old daughter use it that he says he started to get more interested. Uh, over uh, Thanksgiving break, I was working uh, with my daughter, and I, I never wanted this to be something that would write it for her, but it was writing a story with her. That by itself was cool. It was acting like a writing coach. And at some point, the story they were writing together was a, uh, a social media influencer stuck on a desert island with no internet connection, and which I thought was a great concept. And uh, at some point, my daughter, Dia, who's 11 years old, said, hey, can I talk to Samantha, who's the main character? And I said, I don't see why not. And so she said, I want to talk to Samantha. And so it just became Samantha. And she was able to talk to a character in a story that was a work in progress that she was uh, it was in a moment in the book where Samantha was particularly stressed about 
not having an internet connection. And my daughter was able to console Samantha that, you know, life isn't all about what you share. You need to live in the moment. And I was like, am I, I'm living in the future. This is science fiction and it's happening at, at, at our kitchen table. And uh, so when I saw all of that, I said, okay, I, I think there's a really interesting path going forward. So Khan did decide to try to integrate the tech behind ChatGPT into Khan Academy at least in a pilot project that was released to a small group of teachers and students just last week. Khan Academy calls its integrated chatbot Conmigo, a mix of the words Khan and Amigo. You can't just ask this chatbot anything, like you can with ChatGPT. Conmigo is programmed to try to steer students through learning activities. Uh, we, we have an exercise where a student writes a paragraph, the AI writes a paragraph. The student writes a paragraph, the AI writes a paragraph. It's a really fun exercise that some of us have done with our kids, and we've now made it so that any any learner could do it. Uh, we have a, a an integration of vocabulary and reading comprehension at the same time, where depending on the grade level of the student, it gives some vocabulary words, then it asks the student what 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 kind of a story or passage or or topic it wants to go learn about, and then the AI will write a paragraph using four of those vocabulary words, and one of those four uses is a misuse of, of one of those vocabulary words, and the student has to identify what was the misused word and what would have been a better word. And then the AI gives it feedback, gives the student feedback, and then it will write the next paragraph. And so we're able to do these things like vocabulary, reading, comprehension, grammar, even background content knowledge. You know, the passage could be about science. It could be about anything. It could be about history. Uh, and we're able to mix all of these modalities in a really rich, engaging way for students. But despite Sal Khan's enthusiasm, he stressed that he's put many guardrails and safety features in Conmigo to avoid a dystopian scenario where the automated tutor goes off the rails. So, so all all interactions that students have with the with Conmigo with the AI, they're all stored, and parents and teachers can look at any of them, and then. Any conversation, we have what's called the moderation API. So as the student is conversing with it, and actually this is true even if adult is using it, if if it flags something, like the student is trying to have a conversation that's inappropriate, using inappropriate language, is talking about harming themselves or harming others, then it flags a moderation API. And, and then two things are going to happen. One is the AI won't allow that conversation on that topic to continue. And then the second thing is, is that the parent and or teachers who are linked to that account will get a proactive notification currently in the form of an email saying, hey, one of these conversations has been flagged. Click here to take a look at it. Uh, as to, and so that's one, at any point, any of the conversations, even if they're benign, a parent or teacher can take a look at. But then the ones that seem like there might be some something that's worth scrutinizing, they'll know about that. And we hope in the not too far future, we'll also have functionality where we can use the AI itself, where parents and teachers can use the AI to actually ask it questions to get summaries of what uh, the students have been doing. Because you could imagine once students have hundreds or thousands of conversations with the AI, it's going to be very hard for uh, parents or teachers to click on every one, uh, but they could get summaries. And of course, the ones that feel like they're on the edge, that they'll be notified about those. So let me ask you this. This is fascinating. So, okay. So I have, I have a couple kids myself. So I, I you know, my 11 um, year old maybe would use this and then I could ask the bot afterward, Hey, that conversation with that you just had, could you summarize the key points that, that happened and you know, what were the responses like or something? 
That's right. And we haven't implemented that right now. Right now, you will be able to you'll be able to click and see all the conversations that your child is having. But that summary functionality we think is very doable. I think it's you know months away uh, of us. And you could imagine even uh, asking the AI, hey, what what has my child been up to? And and we actually hope that it's not just it can it can actually not just report on the AI conversations can report on all the activity on Khan Academy that the students been doing. So it could say, Hey, you know, I helped them out a little bit with uh, a little bit of math tutoring. Then we had a debate about student debt. And then uh, they worked a little bit on American history. They seem to be getting it pretty well. Uh, So it's, you know, it's almost like talking to a, a tutor. As I put together this episode, I came across an editorial in the guardian newspaper that warned that we are entering an era where humans are just not going to be able to tell what is written by people and what's churned out by a bot. And this author said that's going to be bad for democracy because there won't be a way to reliably measure public opinion or make sense of the world as we're used to. So I had to ask Sal Khan whether this was a worry for him. Yeah, I mean, the reality is we're already in that goofy world where where we don't know what's what. And I think... Whether or not it was written by human or AI, I think we all have, you know, this is where we all have to have the digital literacy or the AI literacy or the internet literacy to be able to say, okay, there's something that's written. Um, If it's making some claims, we should double check those claims somehow, you know, go to some trusted resources uh, to to make sure that, you know, those are, those are real claims. I think that's probably more important than saying, oh, was this AI written, AI assisted written, or was this written by a human being. Now, I think there's going to be even more philosophically challenging issues when, and and it is when. I mean, I think we're months away. I've seen demos of text to speech where it can completely replicate anyone, and not just their voice, but their cadence. So it can, it, it's it's completely them. Um, how should that type of thing be used? Uh, I think all of us recognize to be able to use it for, say, deep fakes or phishing attacks and you know fraud. Those are all, those should be off limits. But if a, let's say, you know, a politician uses that as part of their campaign, and you know, it could call everyone in the district and say, "Hey, I'm so and so. I'm running for Congress. Um, I'm, you know, what? How can I help you? What, you know, I want to answer your questions." People might have a conversation with. They think they're talking to the the candidate, but it's they're talking to, um, they're talking to an artificial intelligence. The, you know, I can imagine that's going to happen in sales. I can ha- imagine that's happening other places. Our principle that we do at Khan Academy is anything that even has a vague chance of being mistaken for a human being or a non-AI, that it is very upfront that it is an AI. So when we have these conversations with historical characters or or fictional characters, it says, I am an AI simulation. When, it, when you do the tutoring sessions, um, it says, hey, I'm an AI simulation so that people can't be confused. And I think it's important. You know, there's a famous test in computer science and artificial intelligence called the Turing test named after Alan Turing. And right. the Turing test is whether an AI can convincingly can make someone convinced that it is a human being. And I think we are actually at the cusp. I've already seen interactions with GPT-4 that I think actually would pass the Turing test um, for, for those types of interactions. So I think it's our principle at Khan Academy is that we should not try to actively fool people. In fact, we should proactively let people know that they are, they're, they're dealing with an artificial intelligence. I also asked Alfred Guy at Yale whether this bot-infused world was a concern for him. Well, I, so I'm, you know, I've been in, mostly on campus. I've been in a lot of conversations about this. I've been on radio once or twice. A thing I, I'm usually optimistic 
I am, it's partially my mindset and it's partially that I don't think the biggest threat is to my industry right now. Um, I am worried because I've seen a lot of good AI graphic design or what looks good to me because I'm not an artist. I've seen a lot of graphic design that seems effective. And I am worried that all my writer friends from graduate school are going to start losing jobs to an AI writer. Like They wouldn't right now because it's not good enough yet, but that that time is coming pretty soon. I've seen people I know and like use uh, Dali instead of a graphic designer. And so it feels to me as if, okay, the equivalent of that is coming for writing. And I have actual humans who make their living writing things on spec. And so, so there's like an economic, I have like sort of an economic concern. And even our students, you know, some of what Yale students are being trained to do is to go out in the world and read things for other people. <laughs> read things and write, pre, you know, slanted, pressy. Like that's part of the job of being an information worker. And I, I suspect that... Uh, OpenAI is going to at least become an entry-level, uh, you know, competent writer of such things. So that's sort of an economic shift concern that's a little different from a learning concern that I, I really do, I am worried about. So whether the college essay is dead may be the least of our problems, even for people whose job it is to work with students on their essays. Maybe the question we should be asking is what kind of society will we have as ChatGPT and other AI technologies increasingly shape our world? And how do we, as humans, fit in? This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you like the show, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend on social media or have ChatGPT write your tweet. Oh, actually, never mind. Um, I'm not ready for that yet. This episode was written and put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at JRYoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Music this episode by Rowan Jane. And thanks for support this week from Rebecca Koenig. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. <laughs>